Hey, welcome to a podcast. You know what? I mean this genuinely. I hope you find a little rest here. In fact, if you fell asleep while you were listening to this, I would actually consider that a five-star review. Unless, of course, you're driving right now. With the release of this episode and this episode's guest, because of them, I'm realizing something now. You know, when I was a young boy, oh, and hi, this is Ned Buskirk, your host. Welcome to your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. You're going to die the podcast. Glad you're here. So with this episode's release, I'm realizing something about my childhood. And I've talked pretty openly on the show often explaining how when I was young, my parents didn't really talk about death and dying all the way up until my mother's death. It was just not a conversation that was made available to me. Grief, loss, these things were not very openly talked about. And so what I'm realizing now, even as I record this introduction, I have this clarity. It suddenly dawns on me that the, the people I was having ongoing conversations with around grief and loss and death and dying through all the years of my childhood truly were the authors whose books I was reading and the characters in those books. Those were the people I was having conversations with and learning about loss and death and mortality and grief. And as I always say, I'm not faulting my mom. You know, these generational pendulum swings. Now I'm going to end up being a parent who traumatized my kid because I talk about death and loss and grief and dying too much. Uh, Hopefully not. But it's not my mom's fault. You know, I just think she was very private about a lot of things. And so then I sought these conversations, maybe even accidentally, they were just in these stories. And even if you are a parent like myself who wants to have open conversations with my kids about mortality and death and grief, what a powerful way, like any human being coming into the world, to make available a lot of different kinds of places for our children to have conversations with other people other than us about these important topics. And literature is such a significantly valuable one. And why I love this episode is because it's with a guest who is an author, and they do many things that I'll get to in a minute. But one of the main topics of our conversation is a young adult book they have coming out called Boomy's Boombox. And part of the story in that book is Boomy, this young girl, losing her father. That death, that loss is out, no spoilers here, by the way, because it's just part of the story right away. And that loss is because of COVID. And so this book also wonderfully, creatively has so much other stuff going on in ways that I felt in awe of while I was reading it. I was thinking, gosh, I want to read all the books I used to read when I was a young adult. It felt like bringing me back to that time and the excitement and curiosity with which I would ravenously devour books that I got at B. Dalton thinking my kid asked me recently, what's your favorite store 
you go to anymore. And I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know that I have that anymore. But I'll tell you, one of them was the bookstore when I was younger. I loved seeing what new book would be on the shelf. And you just don't know until you go there back then. You didn't go on the internet. You just would show up and hope that there'd be a new book out from your favorite author. So very cool then to read this book and kind of get a little bit of that back from my youth. And this book, Boomy's Boombox, also talks about loss. And part of the story is about this daughter getting a chance to say goodbye to her dad when she didn't get to in real life, which speaks to what happened to so many people who had losses from COVID. Their parents, friends, kids would go to the hospital and not come out. Survivors didn't get to hold the hand of a dying loved one or be in the room with them for their last moments. The virus robbed people of those opportunities. And this story is Boomi's way of reclaiming hers and maybe in a way giving the reader some version of that or at least understanding more understanding of grief woven through COVID, the losses, the death, the dying. So one significant reason why this episode feels important to me, and and I'm so glad to have this kind of realization as I got ready for this introduction. Oh my gosh, like I was in conversation with authors and their characters to acknowledge these facts of life. It's part of how I'm in the world like I am now is because of those books. So thank you so much to Shanti for her work, her writing. And yeah, there's a lot more to what she's up to in the world, not just her book, Boomy's Boombox. But Shanti is a novelist and television writer. Her most recent adult novel, Lucky Boy, was named a best book of 2017 by NPR, Barnes & Noble, and the San Francisco Chronicle. In 2021, she published her middle grade debut, The Samosa Rebellion, for readers aged 9 to 13. Her second middle grade novel, Boomy's Boombox, comes out on May 23rd. Recently, she wrapped up work on the acclaimed NBC medical drama, New Amsterdam. She plays soccer and the ukulele, has started taking ballet lessons, and lives in Berkeley, California with her family and a cat named Frog. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Shanti Sekarin. I am Shanti Sekarin. Let me start over. (laughs) I messed up. We don't need to. We don't need to. We don't need to start this way either. We can just go for it. Okay. Um, But you get Um, one more time. I'll do it. I'll do it. (laughs) Okay. I'm Shanti Sacrin. I'm a writer and an, I would call myself a novelist um, and a television writer and a mother of two boys. Mm. And I live in Berkeley, California. Oh, cool. I didn't know you were that close. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, how old are your kids? They are 15 and nine. Do you feel as a, a writer, considering yourself a writer, especially having just read Boomy's Boombox? Um, do you feel like that's part of your leaning into that particular genre or have you always felt compelled towards that? What, what led to that? Um, yeah, I never quite felt compelled towards it until I had children. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it was years and years of storytelling and, you know, just the verbal off the cuff storytelling that you do for little kids. Yeah. And then, um, I started the idea of writing for children sort of started brewing in my head after I finished lucky boy, which was a novel for adults. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think I was just waiting for an idea or some mm-hmm. inkling of an idea. And um, I was struggling to start a new adult novel, just not really feeling how to write story anymore. Um, and that's when I went back to the idea of writing for children, because that's all about story. That's just mm-hmm. like character and story. It's very simple, seemingly simple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause I just, as a writer, at least in education, a lot of creative writing, I think led to me doing you're going to die, but, and maybe it was the first way that I showed up in our events personally, not like facilitating grief space. It was more like it's an open mic. And so I'm going to read my own poetry. And that was when I was getting my master's out at San Francisco state in English literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say, yeah, no, not easy. And, uh, to acknowledge you then too, especially for Boomy's Boombox, I've read quite a bit of your writing, you know, to get ready to ch- chat with you, but okay. just feeling the power of, of that, uh, novel and, and also then sensing how much it was to get to. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess the first very obvious question that lands right in the midst of, of a a podcast called you're going to die is what, what was the, well, first I want to say, you said something like you were, were you, did you say something like you were struggling with storytelling or you had kind of, yeah. Okay. I heard that right. Yeah. Yeah. When you get to the later stages of writing and editing a novel, um, there's so much, like you stop thinking so much about the story and there's so much editing and so much conceptual thought that goes into the book, um, that you're a million steps away from those first scenes, those first, you know, bits of action and dialogue. Mm. And I'd forgotten how to do that in a sense. Mm. So I wanted to start just very simply and it just felt good to start something for children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, knowing, I, I kind of want to hear a, maybe a little description of the book for our listeners mm-hmm. and, and maybe from there, I'll ask my next question, which lands mm-hmm. us right in this sort of mortality conversation and grief. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe you could, you could describe the book um, for our listeners. Yeah. So Boomy's Boombox is a book about a girl named Boomy. She's 12 years old, Indian American growing up in San Francisco in the present day. And she, um, she, she has a couple things going on in her life. Her dad died like a year or two earlier during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. He was a doctor and, um, was, uh, infected on the job and passed away. And so she's dealing with that. She's also dealing with the fact that she is a ballet dancer um, and her body is going through changes that are not friendly to the expectations of the ballet world. You know, she's she's um, gained more weight than her ballet teacher thinks is okay mm-hmm. and basically doesn't make it to the next round. She doesn't advance to the next level of her school. That's That's where we meet her at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she's very, I would say she's... Uh, she's okay with her failure. She, she, she's not crushed by it. She's, um, spunky and vivacious and, and, uh, trying to fly in the face of everything that she's dealing with. Um, but sort of where the story kicks off, I guess, is that she 
inherits from her dad this boombox with a mixtape from the radio that he made in the 80s when he was about 12 years old. And when she plays it through the magic of 80s music, she time travels back to 1986, back to England, where her dad was a 12 year old. She finds him. And and that's sort of where the adventure starts. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the idea of the book is that, you know, as with a lot of time travel narratives, she's trying to find a way to make her life better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it feels like with time travel narratives to the, what is the like fate of this opportunity? you know, and the figuring out that, but I, I, a lot of feelings and questions. First of all, I think I'm just a 14 year old uh, kid. Cause I was super into the book and I read it in two days <clears throat> cool. and I wanted to have it done for our conversation. But also once the boom box gets introduced, <laughs> I was like, Oh hell yeah, here we go. And just feeling the adventure and just enjoying that and feeling that part of me when I was little, I think maybe in relationship to some of this story, what's hard in life to be 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, ish and want to get the hell out, you know, and have an opportunity in literature, especially, but wishing there's some kind of magical adventure waiting for all of us behind some door that's locked or, and so just wanting to acknowledge the book personally, I know I'm not your demographic, I know I'm not your demographic, but, but it was super great. And I realized even as I was finishing it, it's readathon this week. And I got a 11 year old soon to be 12 and a nine year old. And it dawned on me that I should have just reading this to them out loud. Um, Cause I think it's so special. And one of the main reasons that really I think has you and I talking on the show is that loss, you know, her, mm-hmm. her father's death. And, and so I kind of want to stick with that. I just want to know how, how and when that became clear and that that was a huge important element of the story for you other than ways I could guess. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to not try to guess. I just want to hear you kind of share mm-hmm. how that got revealed to you. Yeah. It was a circuitous path, actually, trying to get to, you know, why she was traveling back. And and even the introduction of the father wasn't my first idea. Um, My first idea for this book was that she had an imaginary friend and her imaginary friend was Freddie Mercury. And he lived in a poster on the wall. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Another good idea. But, Did you have that um, poster when you were younger? I had a Beatles poster that nice. lived on my wall that uh-huh. I was in a relationship with when I was about 12. <laughs> I had Paul Abdul. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, Paul Abdul was the first tape I ever bought. Oh, yeah. Right on. About that age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember probably my sister had it first, but that presence mm-hmm. growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Freddie Mercury jumped okay. to, yeah. So the Freddie, you know, I love Freddie Mercury. Um, I also knew that it was, it, it was going to be a challenge to make Freddie Mercury super interesting and compelling to kids who probably don't care a huge amount about Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to make this person um, more personal to her and, and you know, her father, who's more personal to a 12 year old than their parent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I brought in the father. And um, 
of course there's a reason there has to be a reason that she's she's trying to like commune with this this entity this father of hers and um what made sense to me was that he had died and you know she was going back to um try to re refine him in a way as as sort of a I, I didn't realize this at the start, but you know, it's her fantasy. It's her way of escaping the fact that her father has died. It's the magical thinking um, route to getting him back mm. to bringing him back. I mean, not to, I would never put this on any of the kids that will read this book, but there's this feeling I had too of, and I got to be careful with this. I don't want to do any spoiler alerts, but the like getting him, but also like the letting go, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the acceptance of what, you know, who is dead and who's yeah. gone and knowing like even the moment in the book that we can go into detail or not, where she's suddenly thinking that's her mission for being able mm-hmm. to go back is really clearly not the point, you know? And so what I love about that, and I wonder, because the big question for me is, how do you write this book and where do you access your own grief and heartbreak and loss to like understand what Bumi is going through, especially a, a young a young adult version of grief. But just to start with that moment, it is the, well, what is the healthy way of creatively somehow returning to what's been lost, but also in that act, act like know that you can't have it that way, mm-hmm. you know, and you can never have it again, like you want it. Um, but that there's other ways to make a life after loss, yeah. which I feel like the story is so much about. And so that's the big unfair question for you is what is, what was the source for that? You know, I think someone could say I I'm emotional. Cause I'm just like, wondering, you know, whereas feeling maybe your heartbreak and grief and knowing some of the stories uh, of your, you know, from what we've shared online to prepare for this conversation, but it could have been like fun, boomies, boombox. Like it's fun. It's like, there's issues that kids deal with. A loss of a parent is not a common one, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But it happens to plenty of kids, maybe more now than ever this confronting, mortality because of what we've lived through in the pandemic. Um, but it could have been a story, an adventure about this boombox and using mm-hmm. time travel to deal with just being a kid. But mm-hmm. you know, that decision is a significant one and it feels so important. And I'm wondering, again, the big question is like, how do you, how did you source like your life, your own grief, your heartbreak from you now, or the, the younger version of you to round those parts out of the story? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question because I haven't lost a parent yet. Um, so I didn't have to go through this, this childhood grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I really had to access was the idea that um, I think any child with their parent, but especially to maybe a, a stronger degree, uh, a child of immigrants to a certain extent, like you can never know your parents life before they had you like they it's as if a a version of them lived and maybe even died before they had you um and so there's a remove there i think for everyone 
um, there was a life that happened before I was born. Um, and I've always been very aware of that with my parents and, and their uh, life back in India and, and the things that, that happened to them. Um, and also as the youngest, I'm, I'm the youngest of my family by 10 years. Um, there's a 10 year gap. There's this whole family life before I was born. And so for me, it's, um, it wasn't a direct experience of parental death that I accessed. It was this idea that there was this whole other life that I could never know. And I would mm. love to go back and find my parents when they were that age yeah, and hang out with them. Well, I, I want to acknowledge, not that what you just said about the parents and this other life doesn't apply to me, but I was talking with Sheng Wang, uh, a stand-up comic in another mm -hmm. episode. And one of the topics of that conversation was that grief of, of immigrating from where, you know, Taiwan to uh, the United States for his parents and, and the, the specific, the specificity of that intense version of a life that is in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm kind of maybe simply acknowledging, but also kind of wondering if you want to share a little more about that, that specific to you, like you said, as your parents from India, having that like life, it's also the grief or the loss of a life that doesn't even have maybe enough room in the United States to like be a presence or have access to, especially as the next generation of those, those parents. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one, yeah. one thing I do feel like Boomi's got that. There's this right. going back to a time where, where things at a place where there was grief in the relationship with uh, the family lineage and the context they were trying to make a life in. And mm -hmm. I feel like you, you make room for that in the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, with Boomi and I think with probably me to some extent, there was a lot of loneliness in her present day Californian life, you know, mm -hmm. Once her dad died, it was her and her mom and her grandma, who is um, her dad's mom, who has dementia and, you know, is not not really there the way she used to be. Um, and so there's for her, there was a lot of isolation in um, what seemed to be a, a perfectly normal and healthy life. And. Uh, what, what am I answering? What's, what do you, what did you ask? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> my interview style is like, let me say 40 things and somehow yeah. sneak a question in. Yeah. I think I was partly acknowledging what I feel like the book does, which is make room for that specific kind of grief and highlight that there's a difference from me of being a white, uh, you know, American mm. boy and having parents who were also from the United States and grew up here and knowing what you're talking about, I definitely relate to, right? This life they had, but also mm -hmm. the, the more intense version of it maybe, uh, or complicated version of it would be having family, um, who immigrated to the United States and knowing that that mm -hmm. grief is, it's maybe a little more potent around what was that life? Where did they come from? How mm -hmm. far away is it to even access knowing you grew up here and you know, they didn't, or they weren't born here. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, I feel like, like the book makes room for that without hitting anybody over the head. It just feels like there's room for that, right. some version of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I see it with my own kids. I mean, they're, they're cultural touch points that I can share with them because I grew up in the U S mm -hmm. 
um, you know, we can talk about Star Wars back when I saw it. We can talk about yeah. um, the, the things that we have in common. And I didn't have that very much mm-hmm. with my parents. So they tried to give me the things that they thought were important. And I either took them on or rejected them. But we didn't have that shared natural pool of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like Boomy gets to have a little bit of that with mm-hmm. her dad. Cause it's mm-hmm. this going in back to a time when they can relate as the same age, but in the context of that part of life, like you described that is out of reach for us with our parents. Um, yeah. and it feels so sweet and special and also like heartbreaking. Like I was like hurting that they couldn't keep being together, but it's like, that's not, you know, they, she had to let that go, you know? Yeah. Um, it was yeah, a very long way. It was a, it was a long and involved process for her to be able to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I wanted to look at in the book, the reason I said it in England, um, it started off being set in India, but uh, I moved it to England because I wanted to look at the very specific experience of British Indians um, who grew up there, who grew up in Britain in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And how different it was, even from America in the 80s for Indians. Um, and so that was one of my projects with the book, was to to examine just often the extreme racism that they experienced and, and violence and fear. And with the 80s especially, um, so many of, of the people I know, including me, have these sort of like bubbly, lovely, nostalgic memories of the 1980s. Um, but the people I spoke to who are South Asian and grew up there, you know, they had some really, really difficult stories and they don't have that beautiful bubblegum nostalgia that we get to have. Um, and I wanted to pay some justice to that, but also I had to be aware a, that I didn't live that. And also that I'm writing a children's book. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't have the skinheads on the corner, you know, using yeah. the racial slurs that that actually happened and that you could put in an adult novel. Right. I had to find a way to to make this palatable for mm-hmm. young readers. I mean, it's it's tenderly held and I think like offered in a way that I mean, at least for me, obviously, right. I can't talk about what it'll be like for a young adult to read it. But like I said, reading it it felt valuable to have that element mm-hmm. and know that if I, if I had the foresight to say, Hey, son, my son, you know, Shay, I'm going to read you this book. You know, I'm getting ready for this conversation on the show. Um, I think it would have meant a lot to have it received just like that. Cause like I said, it's not, you're not hit over the head with it, but it is a like, right. this is a people, a lineage that it's the relationship is complicated, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there's not, there's clearly not room for a full, uh, uh, life, um, in this town, you know, outside Mm -hmm. of London or, you know, in England. So, um, again, just an acknowledgement for, I feel like the way that you handled it, that, that is accessible, you know, I think will be accessible for the reader. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious in the, cause the element for me that I feel like too now, that connects to maybe why you leaned into writing some young adult literature um, is the being a parent. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you don't have to be the 
kid who lost a parent when you were younger. But I think when you become a parent, there's some way that we get pretty easily, maybe at least I'm feeling it and was feeling it reading the book to what it would be like to be gone and to have our kids lose us. And I'm wondering if you, if there was much of that influence or if you're like, yeah, sure. Or was it really a thought, you know, being a mother now Mm -hmm. as you're writing Mm -hmm. this book? Yeah. I think being a mother has made me very aware of my own mortality, not just, you know, because of the sort of physical disintegration of my body, but because of the, um, the idea that my, I now have two people who absolutely need me and who, um, no one else, no one, no one else can replace me. That's something that I'm very aware of Mm. having talked to my own mother who lost her mother when she was five years old. Um, knowing that I can't be replaced by another person for them. And so I've always been aware of it. I remember, you know, sort of counting out the years, like if I died this year, will they remember me? If I died next year, will they remember me? Sort of like trying to at least make it to a point where they would remember me, um, where I would have been. uh, Yeah, long enough around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, long enough around. Still going, luckily, Mm -hmm. fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about that. Yeah, and you just, you know, being a parent tunes you into... Um, the dangers of the world and also the beauty of the world in a very intense way mm-hmm. that, that I didn't feel before I had them. This is Nick Jaina, podcast producer and composer, just reminding you that You're Going to Die is a nonprofit organization, which means we have to do all kinds of weird, arbitrary things to make the government happy. But the good news is that uh, donating to us means that it's a uh, write-offable tax write-off thing. <laughs> Ask your lawyer how that works. It's good. It's good for you. The heart of this organization is live shows, open mic nights, where anybody can come and sign up and have five minutes to process grief, read a poem, sing a song, talk about something that's troubling them, and be witnessed by the community. Those happen in the Bay Area usually, but sometimes some other places. Go to YG2D.com to learn more about those. I'm just here to introduce a poem that today's guest Shanti Sekron wrote for her departed friend Elmer Morrissey, featuring music composed by me. Thirteen things not to forget about Elmer Morrissey. One, the gap in his front teeth. Two, the way he pushed the sleeves of his tracksuit jacket all the way up to his elbows so that the fabric belled out over his forearms. Three, his fear of touching his eyes. Four, how his height never failed to surprise me. Five, the fact that he owned a Groupon for trapeze lessons. Six, the night he drank four bottles of ginger beer and couldn't stop smiling. Seven, 
the fact that he read my novel on his cell phone. Eight, the honest woodsy timber of his voice. Nine, how he thought his name sounded feminine. Ten, how he trained himself for a month to confront a boy at school who'd continually bullied him for crying and then beat the shit out of him. Eleven, how his singing voice was so much gentler than his speaking voice. Twelve, how he wouldn't have minded me saying that. Thirteen, the time I smashed my finger in my car door outside of Chester's just as he arrived. He hopped off his bike, examined the bloody pulsating wound, and told Spencer I'd need a butterfly bandage. I dunked my finger in a cup of ice water, and the water turned immediately red and kept getting redder until it looked exactly like a vodka cranberry. a few projects going and, and at this point I'm just trying to get myself to focus on one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, you know, re-enter the world of writing for television. I'm trying to write an adult novel now. Um, I'm thinking now about this book that's coming out and what I'm going to do for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I think I'm good because I'm excited about the book. Yeah, And I wasn't always excited about this book because it was so hard to write. It was a real challenge to write. So it didn't always feel good, mm-hmm. but I think I'm proud of, of what it is. Yeah. And, I, um, I think you should be. Yeah. And other than that, I mean, my kids are just like, somehow they get more, they, they take up more space and <laughs> they consume more <laughs> and they ask for more. <laughs> they argue more. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, at a certain point I just have to be like, I don't know. I don't know what to do anymore. So that's where I am now. (laughs) You're at the, I don't know what to do anymore stage. Yeah. I'm just going to feed them. (laughs) Yeah. That's what, Hey, that's the main, it's one of the main jobs. Um, well, I totally relate. And thanks for that moment just to check in. I just feel like I kind of missed that at the beginning just to say, how are you? Because I, I do feel like there's a way that I want to meet you where you're at now. And I totally relate to some of that. I guess the one of the things that's coming up for me is the, for me and my work, and I wonder as a writer too, if having the kids is a way of, in some ways healthy, you know, this like, brings you to something. I know you're joking, but it's like, it's just time to feed them, you know, like, like be present with them, like get out of the yeah. like computer and the, the stories that you're living through in your work. Um, 
most of which that I know of is a lot. You know, it's not like light uh, writing. You know, I mean, you're digging into some really important topics, and even with Boomy's boombox. So I'm wondering if that's part of the experience too. Is is the like, well, thank goodness they just come home, and suddenly you just need to do that. Yeah. In contrast to the writing. (laughs) Right. In contrast to this like cerebral Mm -hmm. abstract world. Um, They do need to be fed as we've established. So (laughs) um, yeah, they, they ground me in, in my day, in my creative process, because they give me like a certain number of hours to work in. And that's when I get my work done. And I think I've always been better with that. Even before kids, I, I always had, at least one or two other jobs that I was working and and it helps me frame, um, my work time, my, my creative time. Um, and, you know, I noticed, you know, just speaking about mortality and, and particularly the pandemic, I noticed that people with children, they worried a lot less about dying, about getting sick because they couldn't, I think, they didn't have time. They had these kids that, you know, had to be mm. homeschooled that, um, had their, their daily demands that, that, you know, were not sitting there, um, worrying about the pandemic so much themselves. Although I, I'm sure, um, actually scratch that because it's my kids who didn't worry much about the pandemic. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. Was, but I want to relate to that. It's like, you just, yeah. like you said, like the grounding, the like hunker down, my experience with it was for sure impacted by the pandemic, but uh, how are we holding some kind of semblance of normalcy together for these mm-hmm. little humans and giving them an experience that things aren't completely fucked. Um, yeah. uh, so in that way, it's like, yeah, we felt the pandemic and I feel like I'm relating to what you're sharing as a, we related, we felt the pandemic, but it was so much a part of the three years, especially deep in it was like, what are we holding together for the kids? Like, how are we keeping ourselves sane? Maybe even what are we turning off because we need to just be like, Hey, we're okay. And mm-hmm. here's a normal life amidst yeah. definitely not a normal life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It really brought down to like a minimalist level what we were able to do. You mm-hmm. know, I couldn't enroll my younger one in like three different extracurricular indoor classes because they didn't exist. And it just kind of pared down um, all our possibilities. In some ways, it was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were some nice moments. Some ways yeah. it was just hellish. Um, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to you sort of naturally kind of connecting to your mom and, and that influence. And I'm wondering about her, uh, a couple things. I'm wondering about like your relationship with your parents, you know, during this time, uh, as a parent, um, Mm -hmm. and the way mortality kind of connects to that. But I also know your mom, you know, she was a big influence in terms of storytelling around grief and loss. And so I'm wondering just just simply how that influences like ways you can speak to that and maybe especially for your writing, how that influences a presence in the storytelling and especially storytelling about grief and death and loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So just the first part in terms of the pandemic, my parents were um, that they are living independently and they're in their eighties and a lot of, my interaction with them was um, getting them groceries and, and, you know, wearing a mask to go into their house and 
trying not to stay too long, um, even though they wanted me to. You know, my mom, like, she didn't care. She'd mm-hmm. lived through, like, so many things. She didn't care about the pandemic. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, so uh, we had to, me and my brothers had to sort of, like, enforce, like, no, you guys have to stay home. You, like, can't go to the grocery store. And, you know, if you're gym is open you can't go to the gym yet you know that's not that's not going to happen mm-hmm. um so it was in in a way they were they so didn't care about it that it was um free but we also had to be vigilant um yeah i mean i've heard stories come, of people that just didn't get to see their parents at all because they were just so yeah. hardcore and understandably right. uh, it's right. funny that you would be in the middle of both directions of taking yeah. care of your kids and protecting them and you know, keeping some normalcy for them and your own parents, you know, maybe need to do a little bit of that too. Both parties of which kept me sort of sane. I mean, they kept me grounded and kept me Mm -hmm. from like worrying too much about the the disease itself, really. Um, So, and in terms of my mom, so she lost her mother to tuberculosis when she was, five years old back in India. This was before they discovered the um, antibiotics that they needed Mm -hmm. for it. Um, And a funny story is that I was told when I was like about that age, about five, that her mother had died of TV. And I thought the person said TV. And I was like, oh my God. They found out like (laughs) 10 years of your life where you're like, I will not watch any TV. No, I'm not interested. (laughs) Well, I was so addicted to TV that of course I was still watching. I was like a smoker. I would watch it. (laughs) Just anxious. Like Like, this will be the end of me, (laughs) but I just have to watch the next show. But yeah. yeah, And also totally related to my grandmother who just watched TV to death because Mm -hmm. who wouldn't? Um, That's a side note. Mm. Um, your so mom's I, mom your mom's, mom's mom, mom who died, died of TV watched yeah. a lot of TV <laughs> she would have I'm sure oh okay yeah um, so this What's was in her the name? 50s her name was Lakshmi um, mm-hmm. so this was in the 50s and um, my mom told me this story uh, when I was about five years old you know she told me that she told me the very um, specific and evocative story of her and her little sister standing in their family, in the doorway of their family home and seeing their mother's body being taken past the house. Mm. So it was being taken um, past the house to the funeral pyre for cremation. And she told me that she remembers saying to her little sister, Amati, which means, it basically means mother fire. Um, so that they knew that their mother's body was going to be burnt. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I mean, t- to tell that to a five-year-old, you know, there's so much there. I was kind of a little bit um, obsessed or in love with the idea of death when I was that age. It was just so intriguing to me. At five? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, around that age. It mm-hmm. just... I wasn't afraid of it at that age. I wasn't worried about it. It was just like this other world. It was this realm that I didn't get to access that just seemed mysterious and huge and strange. Yeah. Um, How do you feel like you got, I do want to stay with this 
the, your mm-hmm. mom and, and kind of that influence, but how do you feel like you got access to the death and dying? When I think back to five, it's hard for me to, other than maybe like, I guess pets, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it was like a openly talked about, you know, was your, do your parents talk a lot about it? My mom would talk about it in relation to her mom. You know, it's, this is a story that, that comes up. She still talks about it, about how her mom died, how she um, never got to, you know, have that like mother's love or she hadn't since she was five years old and, and how much she missed that. And I think it informed my relationship with her. Sure. And um, she really idealized the mother daughter relationship. She didn't get to go through the really hard parts of it. Right. That's interesting. Having her wanting to create something uh, out of what she didn't have, like who mm-hmm. she was to you was a, uh, well, this is, I'm going to, this ideal version of something she didn't even get to live through, but she imagined she lost out on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think she tried to be an ideal mother. She wanted an ideal daughter. She got me. She got like, the, the, you know, the human. <laughs> yeah. The, the real, real daughter. Human. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I accessed it through my mother's stories. Um, I also accessed it just through a, a little bit through the physical world. I remember my bus every day on the way to school would go past the cemetery. This was in Sacramento mm. where I grew up. And okay. there was this like sprawling cemetery, just like right on, um, just right off the street that we would drive down to go to school. And I remember being fascinated by it. Mm. Um, so it was, it was all kind of imagined death. I remember Someone ill-advisedly took me to see Amadeus when I was nine years old. Oh my God. (laughs) And that is just like full of dark horror. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of actually kind of traumatic. I feel that like the the movies that somehow we accidentally watched or someone let us watch. That's a huge Mm -hmm. deal for my earliest relationship to, like you said, many dark things, but death for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was often through storytelling mm-hmm. that I experienced death. Yeah. yeah. And you say your mom, would she talk about your grandma's death a lot? Or was there a lot of other talk about losses and death, family members, would she share a lot of those? Or you would probably be asking her, you know? Um, I didn't have to ask her. It's her favorite yeah. topic. <laughs> yeah. It's it. She loves talking She'd about get her on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, she, you she know, loves her, talking about tragedy. She does. She yeah. does. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll like go through the newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle and like, look for like the worst, the most things. extreme thing. <laughs> and then tell, yeah. And then tell me about that. Did you hear about this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and mostly as a warning, like do not go to mm-hmm. this beach mm-hmm. because this you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she was pretty plugged into it. Her father died when she was a teenager. So it, it really defined her youth, mm-hmm. um, the idea of death. Um, and so by the time often, she's a teenager, both her parents had died. Yeah. 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 So she was raised by her aunt, her mother's sister from, from basically the time that her, her mother died more or less. Oh my goodness. Um, and you know, when you live, 
continents away from your family, you don't hear about the everyday stuff. You hear about when people are born, you hear about marriages and you hear about deaths. Um, That's right. You don't hear so much. I mean, it's the communication is better now because we have so much more media through which to communicate. But back then it was like an aerogram letter every few weeks, maybe a phone call if it was absolutely necessary because it was so expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So you got the big details of people's lives and often that was a death. Yeah. What to celebrate or what to mourn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, is another function of, of the immigrant experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Life gets distilled down to these very, key moments. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I'm suddenly thinking like Boomi's boombox. Do you, do you ever think about it as a access point to your mom, like growing up with early, that early loss? Yeah. Yeah. I think I do. Um, you know, it, it's, I didn't think of it as a way to emotionally connect to my mom. Um, I think hearing so often from her about this loss, it gave me a comfort with it. I was able to think about the death of a parent. It gave me like a, an access point, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't seem like something overwhelming and scary because I'd almost been like uh, conditioned to it. Would she read the book? Would she? Yeah, she'll read the book. She reads all my books. All your stuff. Yeah. 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 She'll be happy to see that there's tragedy uh, well integrated. Tragedy (laughs) abounds. so much to Shanti Sekeren for being on the show and talking about everything she's up to. As usual, always so meaningful for me to get to read a book like Boomy's Boombox and, and her other work and then get to talk to a wonderful person like Shanti. So thank you, Shanti. If you want to order Boomy's Boombox, you can pre-order it right now at HarperCollins Books. And I'll put that link in the show notes along with Shanti's website and Shanti's Instagram and all the other things that may matter to you. Go check it all out. Nick Jane, hello. Hello. How are you today? I Just as you were talking about Shanti, I just remembered that um, I did a report on her in high school. Like we went to high school together. Oh, cool. And we had to like interview fellow students and <laughs> do a awesome. oral report on them. And I, I was paired off with Shanti. And um, I I was a bit of a rascal then. And I would like kind of make these like humorous things, you know, in my, in my speech. And uh-huh. um at one point, I I said, uh, you know, Shanti uh, says that she's a vegetarian and that she loves animals, but that's weird because uh, I saw her uh, this weekend. <laughs> oh my god, I'm feeling I'm just cringing already. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we can edit this out. <clears throat> Said something about like I saw her clubbing baby seals or something. Oh you know? my gosh! Uh, how'd that go over? It, it got some laughs, you know. How about uh, for, how about for Shanti? I. It's probably no. Oh, oh no, she thought it was funny. Um, oh good. The Mrs. Gatewood, our teacher, didn't think it was funny, Ooh. and I. It was probably no coincidence that that was the last year I was in the honors program. <laughs> Uh, I remember you think that tilted the scales. I remember having to go to summer school, and I d- I got kicked out of the honors program. Wow! Yeah, I'm so sorry, Nick. Offer a joke. Was it worth it? it you know what? It was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Um, I want to share something with you, Nick, and obviously all you listeners that Shanti shared with me after we'd recorded our interview about her mom. And it connects to something I said in our introduction. She told me that her mom, she clarified that her mom's sharing about tragic news probably isn't as much a love of tragedy like she mentioned in our conversation, but a way for her to relate to the hardship she went through and maybe a way to corral and control the unpredictability of the world. And I so appreciate that. I know that all the versions of our parents have their complications. So I'm not saying that the way Shanti's mom communicated with her was the right good way through and through, but I'm a little envious that my mom didn't do uh, so much of that with me. And, and I know I mentioned that in the introduction and I want to bring it up here now with you, Nick, because what I realized today, even clearly, I mean, of course, this is something I probably could have easily accessed before now, but I hadn't really thought about it. And one of the things I realized is that when I was younger, books were really the main way I was having conversations like these conversations my mom wasn't having with me about grief and death and loss and death and dying. And I wondered for you, what your experience was with these kind of conversations when you were younger. And, and I'm just going to guess that books might've also filled that or offered that at least, um, in addition to how your parents communicated with you or maybe in another way, I'll let you tell me. Uh, well, in, in lieu of the sex talk, my uh, mother left a book on my, at my door <laughs> with no, no mention, no word or anything. And the book was called, uh, why is this happening to me? Oh, wow. And it was about puberty. And I just sort of, there was no follow-up discussion. There was just the book oh, at my door. Yeah. And it, wow. there was just pictures. And I remember oh, yeah. it saying that like when a man and woman love each other, they get together in the dark and they rub up against each other naked. <laughs> That's what it said in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and they rub up against each other until there's a big pop. And that uh, confused me for a long time. <laughs> that was in the book? Like there was, well, it just, I remember it saying it like there was just one one pop like between the two, you know, like it was uh-huh. a, a mutual pop, you know? Uh-huh. And I know that is possible. I know that can happen. Yeah. But uh, to imply that that is <laughs> de rigueur, like that is the way it happens. Uh-huh. Uh, was a little confusing. <laughs> Absolutely. For, for me. Okay. Well, you, you make an important point that sometimes in literature <laughs> we read in the beginning of the episode, I'm, th- I'm saying, oh, the books were giving me all the, the information in ways <laughs> I needed it. And maybe this book didn't, didn't do that for you. But, but what about 
literature around grief and loss and death and dying? Or where were you having those conversations if you were? Uh, yeah, I mean, no, no conversations at all. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, obviously it's like when my parents' parents start dying, that there is at least it, our lives are touched by that. I had a, yeah. I had a, I had a friend in, in middle school whose brother died. And I just remember that, like, but there was no conversation. I, you know, I mean, we went to like the, the wake and everything mm-hmm. and there was no real talk in the car afterwards. And there was no, I don't know. I don't think I had any books. Like I was yeah, on my own, you know, well, just well, with let, like finding things. Let me be clear that I, I, I don't mean like, um, why is this happening? <laughs> why is this <laughs> Why is this happening to you? Why people die? I don't even mean that kind of book. I mean like reading Lord of the Rings. I was in relationship and so then in kind of a conversation with people and their losses. And I actually mean specifically maybe even like fiction. Um, more than I mean some nonfiction book. I didn't have anything like that growing up. Uh, but I do think reading some of these favorite books of my childhood gave me access to how people could deal with loss, maybe um, honor our dead, make room for the dying, um, make room for the emotion of of grief. Uh, that's kind of, kind of maybe more the genre I'm I'm wondering about. If you remember, like this is such a random example, but you know by now, and some of you listeners might follow us on Instagram, and I've been doing these Monday mortality meme dumps. And one of the memes that I came across that I'll likely share in the weeks to come is a photo of the kids in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids all gathered around the ant. Spoiler alert, everybody. Gathered around the ant that dies. And they're all tiny, and they're all hunkered around the ant. And it says, the quote with the meme is something like, the saddest moment of my childhood, which I have complicated feelings about because I had a lot of other sad, significant, real moments, but also it was a huge deal when that little creature died or that big creature, Mm. depending on the perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, so using that as an example of these other ways we could like cry about loss or the, the other room we could get with characters and authors, uh, creatives, uh, for, for these kinds of conversations. However, abstractly, maybe sometimes they are. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about film and, Mm -hmm. and stuff, yeah. Um, that's, yeah, it's, it's an escape. It's a, it's a depth of feeling that, and a, a total immersion in a world of a depth of feeling that, um, I didn't have access to readily in my house. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. like, I still have trouble even talking to my wife after a really good film that is like really in depth and has, you know, the, the, the expanse of human experience and love and loss. I can't just talk afterwards and be like, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that actor. <laughs> you know, like I'm mm-hmm. just, I, I'm still in it and I, I, I need the, like the next day to let, let it, go and be able to talk about it in any intellectual mm. way. Um, I, I totally was, relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know I was into uh, like Alice in Wonderland. Um, Count of Monte Cristo was a favorite book of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, like tales of um, being lost, being imprisoned, being like shut off from things, you know, like f- finding a lot of refuge in uh, identifying with tales of, people being like having to find their own way, you know, and kind of like improvise and make, 
make do with uh, whatever was around them, I think was a strong story for me mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I know, I know that feeling of, uh, yeah, crying at the ant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. The movie is a good, I guess, a different example than one that really lands right in the context of this, this episode. But I, I do relate to this time it would take for me to process some of what I experienced. I feel like in the early years, especially getting into music soundtracks was a way that I would keep returning to that feeling. Part of my process would be getting the Schindler's List soundtrack and listening to it, you know, on repeat um, Mm. as I would fall asleep every night or feel the dreams. (laughs) Yeah, no, super, you know, no surprise here. Super, super intense, but, but I'm, I'm connecting the, I, I, wasn't talking with someone about it probably who went, my parents who took me to the movie probably weren't like, how was that for you? Or did you notice this? Let's talk about that moment. There was not a lot of that at all. Mm -hmm. None of that really. And so I wonder if I was just figuring it out on my own and trying to be with the feeling at least through the music. Uh, Speaking of movies, have you had enough time to process? And so then talk about um, the documentary fire of love. Oh yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah, mm. so you you recommended <laughs> Chelsea and my we haven't w- talked about it yet. Chelsea and me to watch that film a long time ago, and you were frustrated that it took us a while <laughs> to watch it, but we did watch it. I let it and go. You're right. It's it's gorgeous. Oh, um, so gorgeous. It's, it it's um it's you know like you know right at the beginning that they're going to die in a volcano, and then mm-hmm. the whole film is them like running around volcanoes, <laughs> mm-hmm. which creates its own little tension of just yeah. like, oh, is this the one? You know. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I love stories of people just, um, inexplicably obsessed with something Uh that makes them feel human and and connects them to something that doesn't necessarily line up with a career path, you know, that is understandable (laughs) that you could explain to something. It's like, don't we relate just wanting to (laughs) be around volcanoes, like right when they're exploding. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. I'm so glad you guys watched it. I recommend it. Listeners, Fire of Love, not um, sponsoring this episode, um, but uh, definitely check it out. It's beautiful. So well made. uh, Beautifully shot. We should get that director on here. I I tried to reach out to them on Twitter and with no luck. And then Instagram, I think I maybe messaged them, but I might try again. Um, But it got nominated for best documentary didn't win i don't think but um pretty sure it got nominated for uh academy award um i'm glad you guys watched it okay everybody well that's our show so good being with y'all thanks for listening bye nick bye until next time everyone bye-bye